Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Sitecast. I'm Spencer Baker, and I'm here with a brand new addition to our team. So for those of you who've listened to our previous shows, this show used to be me and David Irvin going back and forth, talking psychology with each other. But unfortunately for me, fortunately for him, David has moved on to graduate school. He's no longer here at Bryan, but he is doing very well where he is. But fortunately for you, all of our listeners, He's not the only person who's really smart here at Bryan College. So I am here with my new co-host, Benjamin Reagan. You flattered me. <laughs> ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about you. Sure. Um, I'm a senior psych major. I've uh, done a bit of research at UTC. I'm getting a paper published soon. I'm really interested in uh, just learning about current issues with psychology and neuroscience and excited to be on the show nice so i think ben's gonna bring a great perspective he's like he said he he knows things and we're gonna put that knowledge to good use in today's episode and in future episodes hopefully we'll have a lot of great content uh coming out for you but today's topic today's topic ben what do you think today's topic is well you're asking me like (laughs) i don't already know he knows what today's topic (laughs) is because today's topic is polarization we're talking about groups group polarization groups and how they influence us and especially why people nowadays are so ideologically divided. Something that probably most of you know is that uh, politically, socially, Americans are really divided. We disagree on an awful lot of things, and those disagreements can get very heated, and they can get very value-laden. People don't just say, oh, you disagree with me, but people tend to say people on the other side of the political aisle are bad. People on the other side, or even that people on the other side of the political aisle are dangerous. So these are... Uh, factors that psychologists have spent a lot of time studying and things that psychologists can comment on. Psychologists can comment on why people are displaying these trends and why people are moving away from each other and why people form themselves into groups that push out or push away everybody else. And we're going to talk about the psychological factors that uh, explain this and even how you can work on those things in your own life in order to be more accepting of other people and understand where other people are coming from. So, Uh, Jumping into that, we're going to first open up our discussion with a discussion of group influence. So, Ben, do you want to tell us a little bit about the famous line experiment and what it has to do with group influence? I don't know if I can fully articulate all the specifics. That's okay. I can do it. Do you... It's just... Yeah. Sure. I'll jump in. I'll explain the line experiment, and then you jump in and talk about... You relate it to uh, group influence and polarization. You can... I'll do that, and then you jump in, and you can lead the talk on polarization, because you have all that stuff down there. Okay. So, we're going to open up our discussion about group influence by talking about one of the most famous experiments that psychology has run, and that's called Solomon Ash's line experiment. So, at some point, way back in the day, there was a researcher called Solomon Ash, and he wanted to test the effects that group influence had on the way people made decisions and the way people perceived reality. Pretty useful stuff, I would say. And the way he tested that was he sat down... uh, five people in a line so five people sitting all taking a test and the test was he would give them show the people who were taking the test three lines of different lengths and then he would show them another line and say which line from the original set is the same length as this one and he'd go down the line starting with the first person and the first person would give an answer second third all the way down the the trick about this experiment is that only the last person in the line was actually being researched because everyone else was a confidant a confederate we would say in psychology they were in on the test and each one of them gave the wrong answer so imagine you're the fifth person sitting in that experiment you're at the end of the line and you know that the line you've been shown is the same length as line two 
than the original experiment. And you know that. It's pretty. It's a pretty easy test. But every single person ahead of you says, it's line one, it's line one, it's line one, it's line one. And whenever it comes to your turn, you're seriously questioning whether what you perceived about the line was actually true. He found that between uh, a third and half of people ended up giving the wrong answer that fit with the rest of the group. So the last person in line, he knew at the beginning what the, what the right answer was, but after being influenced by the group and questioning his own perceptions, from 33% to 50% of the time, he would give the answer that fit with the rest of the group. And that's an example of how group influence can change the way we perceive reality. It can force us to question our own perceptions. It makes us question what we believe, even things we believe very strongly. And that just it is an illustration of how much groups can change the way that we see the world. And that leads into polarization too, which is uh, something James Stoner, he found that group decisions are actually riskier than when people make decisions in private. It's people have um, their own individual notions, but sometimes when they come together, their attitudes are enhanced and become even more strongly to one extreme or the other. That's kind of called a risky shift. Um, One instance of it is when a group of members had a given bias towards being moderately pro-feminist, and then they became um, a lot stronger in that following the discussion. So that could apply to a bunch of different attitudes or ideologies people have, which isn't necessarily bad in every case, but um, could be something to at least be aware of when discussing. Right. So if you have a single, let's say, Republican expressing their political views, they're going to be somewhere in the middle, like moderately right. But if you get them in a group of people who share those same opinions, all of a sudden they're much more comfortable with those views. They're more, much more comfortable going to the extreme with those views even, and that's where we see a risky shift. So if you put someone with moderate views in with another people who have the same moderate views, their views are going to go more extreme to whatever side they started on because all of a sudden that's what becomes desirable in the group. That becomes the kind of behavior that gets rewarded in a group of people who have similar beliefs to you is going farther towards whatever whatever opinions you think they hold. And in the end, the group's opinion as a whole doesn't necessarily reflect the individual member. It reflects a slightly more extreme version of them. And group influence can even be dangerous in some cases. Uh, Sometimes if people are in a group, they can feel a stronger sense of anonymity because uh, that spotlight's kind of less on them. And that can lead to um, what's called a de-individuation, which is when people kind of lose their sense of self, take on the group mentality, and we see this in a lot of um, uh, mobs and things that kind of mass breakouts that happen when people are committing violence and crimes that it seems like they would never do in their own normal daily lives. We have a, a, a strong social brain. We react very strongly to the people around us. So whatever emotions that the person next to me is expressing, I feel a pressure to express those same emotions. So right now I'm sitting in the studio. Ben is very calm. I am very calm. But if Ben started to get angry, I would feel that emotion reflected in me. And that's just a small scale effect that whenever you start adding people, whenever you, the group starts getting bigger, when the group starts getting more emotional, that ends up getting reflected in all of the individual members, which leads to those effects like anonymity because you think, oh, it's the group, it's not just me, and all those kind of things. So it builds off of each other just because of the way that our brains are set up to react to other people. And like you said, yeah, it's it's a social brain phenomena. And I think we need to be careful not to just pathologize those two, saying, oh, it's a bad thing, and because there are risks with it. But um, 
having strong social connections is a lot of what has helped us as people be able to survive and thrive and have society. Exactly. And that's something that we're probably going to come back to a couple times in this episode is that groups are risky, but groups are good. Groups like uh, what if you belong to a church, that's a very usually a very healthy social group. If you belong to a school that you have some level of school pride for, if you belong to a country and you want what's best for that country, a lot of the groups that we're involved in actually do us a lot of good, and they're, they're good things, but they come inherent with risk. So the main thing about this episode is educating, and hopefully educating you, on some of the effects that groups can have so you're better equipped to navigate the groups that you're in. Moving on to um, some other effects that come whenever we get into groups is this idea called guided reality. So even the way that we view reality as a whole is shaped by whatever group we happen to come from. So I know, Ben, you did a little bit of research on this. Mm-hmm. What, did you, what did you find whenever, whenever it comes to guided reality? Yeah, I looked, uh, looked at the work of um, Valerie Tirico, who's an author and psychologist, and she was talking about how, uh, she has a quote, conversion is a process that begins with social influence. As sociologists like to say, our sense of reality is socially constructed. So one thing she was looking at was kind of how uh, missionary work happens and how they create this sense of this is all what we believe and this is kind of what um, guides some people to faith. Not to say that that's like denouncing their faith or anything, but it's just something that happens whenever anyone comes to a conclusion. If there's that group influence surrounding them that all is leading to that one decision, then you know those are factors to think about. Exactly. Those of you who grew up in religious circles probably heard about or even attended a a revival meeting or experienced an altar call. Those are techniques that some people are very, they like them a lot, some people don't like them, but there's an undeniable aspect of social influence in those things. Even something that we think is so, that we come to it by reason. We come to it by reason like our religious beliefs. For example, I believe what I believe because I've done the research and I've reasoned through it and I've decided it's the best thing to believe. I think that. But there are other influences at work. There's the social groups I belong to. There's the things that I think I want to believe. And we'll get into that in the next section with cognitive biases and the way that we're biased towards believing what we want to believe. So there are a lot of other factors involved when we make decisions, especially when we're talking about political polarization. Everybody thinks I'm a libertarian because I'm so smart and I came up with my beliefs on my own. Maybe. That's probably part of it. But a lot of it is also the influences the unconscious influences, the social influences that help create the beliefs that we have. That we don't just arrive at what we believe through pure reason, we arrive at it through a combination of different influences. Right, and there can even be a sense of uh, being threatened to change our beliefs. If someone brings some evidence that doesn't necessarily fit our mold, um, it can be hard to want to change our beliefs because we, we would feel like we're betraying the group, possibly. Some of this might be at the unconscious level. But um, one risk perception expert, David Ropick, says, we're social animals instinctively reliant on our tribe for safety and protection. Any disloyalty literally feels dangerous, like the tribe will kick you out. And the effect is magnified in people who are already worried. And so with people that are already very worried and um, kind of intense in this current political environment, I think we all kind of feel a oh, that really gets me, this this threat of someone is bringing information that doesn't align with mine. Exactly, exactly. And that's why you see so much emotional weight being caught up in political discussions. It's because <coughs> it's not just about, should we believe this thing or should we believe this other thing? 
It is, should I belong to this group or belong to that group? So whatever side of the political eye you're on, that's really not what we're discussing. Um, I think you can make plenty good arguments for all kinds of political beliefs. You can make plenty good arguments for all kinds of different uh, belonging to different social groups. But that's not the point is that it's not just the groups aren't just defined by what people believe, but they're defined as people identifying themselves with the group. People don't just say, I, I believe this about social policy. They say, I am a Republican. I am a social Democrat, something like that. Because people get a sense of belonging. They get a sense of identity from identifying with just the beliefs that other people have. So it goes beyond pure intellect to a sense of belonging and a sense of, I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to be kicked out of this group. So I'm going to go along with whatever this group says, whatever the rules are of this particular, whatever the rules of engagement are with this particular group that I'm in, in order to stay, because staying matters to me, I'm going to go along with what the group says as well. Yeah, and, and not to say that all having passion for your beliefs isn't bad either, because some, um, actually some level of being angered or kind of just a righteous indignation over certain uh, certain things that happen politically can even help people be more active in them. Um, so not to say that you should try to rationalize those away always. I mean, yeah, think about the other person's perspective for sure. But um, also one helpful thing can be kind of learning to uh, accept your emotions and kind of be in touch with those so you don't just ah, go to the other side. And so the, the two equal and opposite errors in psychology, giving in to every impulse that we have, just being like, I'm angry, so I'm going to act angry. I'm just going to be angry. Or, I'm angry, that's not good, so I'm going to not let myself experience that. That comes into play in a lot of different aspects of psychology, really just life. Going to either extreme can be um, unhealthy. And learning to evaluate where you are and say, okay, I'm angry, but I'm angry for a good reason, can benefit you in political discussions or just in life in general. Right, yeah. And by looking at that, you're not acting on the impulse like you were saying. Exactly. Being a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be a jerk. Speaking of being a jerk, uh, belief perseverance and various other cognitive biases. This is kind of the second half of polarization. So we talked about all the influences that come with us being in a group, how we want to, how we're built for it. We're built to interact with groups. We're very social beings. But there's also some individual biases. So the reason why we hold on to our beliefs and we hold on to our beliefs so strongly is because of a various, various ways that we think that aren't always reasonable. They're just personal biases. So what are some of the uh, personal biases that we have to watch out for, Ben? A big one is confirmation bias. So that's only wanting to ingest information and take it in that already confirms what we think. And um, you can see that in a lot of different things, whether that's a Google search, that when you're trying to research a topic, or whether that's um, who you choose to listen to on podcasts or things. And sure, we have our own favorites, but sometimes we only want a certain filter of information coming in. And that's a big thing with the internet age. Um, A lot of people have said that the internet should reduce polarization because everybody now has access to all perspectives on a topic. I can Google conservative view of tax policy. I can Google liberal view of tax policy. I can Google what this and that and everything. All kinds of research that I have available to me, all kinds of perspectives. That should happen, but oftentimes it actually is the opposite of the case. Because I have all this available to me, I will search specifically for stuff that I already believe in. So, if I am an anarchist, and I believe that the government shouldn't exist, I believe there should be no tax policy because taxes are basically immoral, then I can Google 
anarchist positions, or I can look at podcasts that other anarchists, that my anarchist fr friend down the street recommended to me. I know a few. Oh, yeah, exactly. So you can get perspectives you already agree with. You can get information that seems to uh, benefit your side, and you can leave off or you can downplay information that doesn't already agree with you. So confirmation bias is observed in just about every area of life, and it's the reason why you know kids tend to have the same political views as their parents, for example, is that it's very hard to break out of a belief system that you've already become entrenched in. Another interesting thing is false consensus. So as people, a lot of times we want to feel like we're unique and individual in certain things, but on certain broader things, perhaps, such as maybe um, some religious or political views, we want to feel like, you know, we're fitting in with people. We, um, we share things in common with people. But sometimes that feeling that everyone feels the same way or thinks the same way on this issue is actually misguided, and there are a lot of different nuances and perspectives. So, mm -hmm. And that's something that people, uh, there, there are two psychological biases. One's false uniqueness and one's false consensus, which is really interesting. So you can do a lot of research on both of those. People like to think they're special, but they also like to think that people believe the same way they do. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's some interesting biases that we have in our and our weird brains that we're all carrying around. But false consensus is especially true whenever it comes to opinions. So if I have an opinion, I think, I because I'm the center of my universe, I think that's the default opinion. I think that most people have to think that way, and people who don't think that way are somehow abnormal, not because it's true, but because that my opinion is the one I'm exposed to most often, so it's the one that I'm most familiar with, and it's the one that I think should be the normal opinion. Yeah, I think you can see that with, like, TV shows and fictional stories, too, of mm -hmm. our opinions on them. I know, at least in the college arena, those get pretty heated sometimes. Exactly. People arguing over, is this a good book? Is this a good show? Maybe. It's pretty subjective. But because I have my own set of tastes and I have my own set of ways of enjoying particular kinds of media, I can say, no, this is objectively better, even when it's oftentimes not. And that's an example of me projecting my false consensus of everyone should think like me whenever it comes to entertainment onto everybody around me. Yeah. So Spencer, you've done some looking into Jonathan Haidt, who uh, released some interesting books, such as The Righteous Mind, which have to do with what, exactly what we're talking about. Can you tell me a bit about that? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, both of us have looked into Jonathan Haidt's research because it's really interesting. Basically, Jonathan Haidt takes personal beliefs and relates them to uh, group beliefs. So he looks he starts with the question of what's the the values behind conservative positions and liberal positions. So we know people disagree politically, but he says that's related to what people value as individuals. So conservatives tend to value things like uh, respect for the group, respect for authority, um, things like that more than liberals do. People who self-identify as politically liberal um, tend to value those things a little bit less, but they tend to value things like care, so uh, caring for the fellow man, and fairness. Depends on if it's phrased as fairness or justice. There might be some disparity there. But essentially, everybody cares about those things. Everybody has the values of we should take care of each other. We should be fair to each other. We should try to maintain order in society, and that involves some level of authority, respecting authority, um, understanding that the, the rules and the social limitations we already have, usually they exist for a reason. Everybody agrees on those things to some extent, but it just depends on what values people emphasize. So going back to what I said about our political beliefs or our beliefs in general aren't just formed by what we have reasoned through, 
they're formed by a lot of other factors. They're formed by what we value. So what we value, thing, if we value fairness more, we might see the poor getting oppressed and think, oh, they need, we need more government welfare programs for them. But if we think, oh, uh, we value order and structure in society more, maybe we should, see, maybe we look at things like personally constructed gender for people who want to say like personal gender pronouns and say, no, that's going to hurt the order of society because it's like it's a threat not only to our political beliefs or our reasoned out beliefs, but it's a threat to our values, which is something that we hold a lot deeper inside of us are the things that we value the most deeply. Yeah, and there's even some reframing studies that look at how if you can take um, a certain value that's usually more on one side, such as uh, perhaps um, more a liberal idea of uh, environmentalism and reframe some of the language that better reflects um, values that are more conservative, such as maybe the concept of purity or like respect that you were talking about, it can actually help people um, relate more to that and be more willing to, okay, I think that might be a good idea. You know. Exactly. And you talked earlier about how changing beliefs can be threatening. It feels like it's a threat to our position in the group. So that's a good example of that, is that if you say environmentalism, most people who are conservative just run for the hills because you're obviously trying to take away their freedom and give it to, like, endangered species or something. But whenever you frame it as, hey, we have a role to take care of the environment, we have a responsibility to take care of the environment, we should keep the environment pure, other statements that aren't framed that way, they can be a lot less threatening to someone's group identity. So someone might reject environmentalism as a conservative not because they don't care about the environment but because it feels as if it's a betrayal of their group and the things their group has traditionally valued and this idea of feeling is important too because um though we do think so much we're being reasonable uh high even says in a quote from 2007 even seemingly heady moral reasoning draws heavily on emotional processing consequently people with damage to the limbic system which is a system that um is involved with a lot of emotions and other networks in the brain, have a hard time making certain ethical decisions. So even making an ethical decision, which we might think is so perfectly calculated and reasoned, reasonable, it is in some sense, but also is emotional. And that's some of how we can come to those reasonable conclusions. That's why psychologists study things like empathy. Like the most of the reason why we do loving actions towards people, it's not because we've convinced ourselves that loving actions are the right way to treat people. It's because mm -hmm. we love them. It's because we feel empathy towards them. It's because we want to see them succeed. And those are all motivational and emotional things far more than they are just reasoned things, far more than they're just, we think this is the most logical thing to do to take care of this other person. One thing that we've looked at is uh, the backlash effect. So when people start having doubts, Sometimes this can actually lead them to be more convinced of their already uh, conceived ideas. So if people are insisting of a certain position, so say um, there's one Northwestern University study where people, the less confident people felt in their opinions about issues such as whether animal testing is okay, for example, the more they actually tried to convince others of their chosen view. So the more they became convinced of their position, was actually inversely related to how convicted they were personally, mm -hmm. which is strange. Yeah, it's interesting, definitely. You might expect that it would be much more driven. If we're convicted of something, if we believe something very strongly, you would expect that we would be much more driven to convince others of that thing. But apparently that might not be the way that our, that our brains work. 
Right. And that is just one study, but it, I think that's a, a factor that's worth researching more. It might be tied into false consensus. So we think if we hold something very deeply, then we might assume that other people would already hold it. Whereas if we're less confident in a belief, we feel more uh, more of a drive to try to convince other people of that thing. Right. And that, that feeling that we've told about being convinced, uh, can you talk a little bit about the Capris delusion? Ah, yes. So this kind of ties together what we talked about in the first section about how groups influence us with what we have been talking about and the, the various biases that we have. So this is a, a bias in the way that we understand things. When it comes to holding ideas, holding positions on things, we tend to have a sense of knowing them before we actually know a lot about them. So this is a, a fascinating effect that not a lot of psychologists have been talking about, but it's I, I believe it's rising in popularity. More research is being done on it. But research on different disorders and brain injuries have shown us that humans have a feeling or sense of knowing that can get activated by reason and evidence, but also can get activated in other ways. So essentially, there's part of your brain that whenever you feel as if you know something, it gets activated. So whenever I hear the word... Um, for me, abortion, I think in my head, I, kn I know what my opinion is on that. And I think in my head, I know why I believe what I believe about that. Because I can go to various arguments, I can go to various ideas, I can go to various values that I have built up over the years from learning about it. So that is in the, in the sense of, we, I get a sense of knowing from that. But it's not necessarily the only way we can get a sense of knowing ab about things. So we can get a sense of knowing about a topic just because we feel like we ought to, or we might get a sense of knowing about a topic before we actually fully understand it. So we might end up having a sense of knowing without actually knowing all that much about a topic. For example, should we put ethanol in gasoline? That's, to most people, that's a pretty obscure issue, but someone who is maybe he already identifies as strongly conservative might hear that topic and assume, based on what he thinks he's supposed to believe, because conservatives, of course, they're against ethanol, because ethanol is environmentalist garbage, maybe. I don't know. Depends on what group you come from. But he might have the part of his brain activated about having a sense of knowing. So he believes that he knows more about the topic than he actually does. He thinks in his brain that he knows the topic, he knows the arguments for it, and he knows why he holds his opinion. But when actually questioned on, on the topic, when asked, why do you believe that? Why do you believe ethanol is, is bad or a bad idea? He might falter. He might realize he doesn't know nearly as much on the topic than he thought he did because it was the sense of knowing rather than actually knowing that he was responding to, which is I think is totally fascinating and plays in a lot to ideas like polarization, confirmation bias, why we hold beliefs, and why our beliefs differ so sharply from other people's, even if there's necessarily all, we don't know all that much evidence about them. Yeah, the importance of knowing the other person that you're talking to. Uh, there's a quote by author and artist Botin Zane, who's been doing a lot of work with political polarization that's happening now. She says, you definitely need to know the other person as a person to want to stay engaged when things get controversial. So if I, since I know Spencer and have a, a good friendship with him, relationship, like if we disagree, there's a, a higher chance that I'm going to stay with that and hear him out and listen to him because I've, I've seen how he's demonstrated other values that I value too, such as you know care and friendship, and um, I know he thinks through his ideas, and I, and I respect that, even though we you know might disagree on some things. Exactly, yeah. 
it is much easier to dehumanize, to downplay, to ignore the ideas of someone you don't know. So when you hear someone talking on the TV that you've never seen before, and you think, why should I, why should I listen to him? Why should I believe this person's perspective? But closer to home, if it's someone you do know, and someone you do know as an expert, then you think, okay, I put more weight on whatever they believe. Because we know you have some kind of a relationship established with them. Even if it is, I think they're an expert. It is much harder to ignore the beliefs of someone that you're close to, a friend, a family member. It, the way that our brains work, the way that groups work, means that we have to take their opinions more seriously. Is because we value that relationship more, and we don't necessarily want to see it get broken down by a disagreement. Once again, group polarization, social influence on the way that we think, kind of protects us in that way. It makes us consider people's opinions more strongly when we feel as if we're connected to them. So now we're going to move into the third part, which is talking about how we, what can we do about this? You know, what, how, what are some practical things in our daily lives we can do about this and help you guys, help ourselves, you know, make the world hopefully a little less polarized? So um, in a social psychology textbook, uh, Myers and Twinge, they talk about some different principles for how to avoid groupthink. Um, some of these you might even think about in regards to your classes and professors. Do your professors do this? Does it impact the, um, the discussion when they um, go against some of these things? I, I just take that in mind when we kind of uh, talk through some of these. So the, one of the first ones is uh, they recommend be impartial as a facilitator, not revealing your opinions at the start of the discussion. What do you think about that, Spencer? I think it makes a lot of sense. We have uh, different styles here, Brian. Some professors are pretty upfront with their opinions. Mm -hmm. There are some professors who I've had classes with and still don't know their perspective on particular topics. <coughs> same here. <laughs> yeah. So um, some people, they'll purposely put this to use. They will give the information on a topic, say, this side believes this, this side believes this. I'm not going to tell you what side I'm on. And I think that's respecting their social influence, especially if you're a professor, a facilitator, if people see you as an authority on a topic, then they will tend to respect your opinion a, f a fair amount more because of social influence. So this is one of the ways to prevent people from all forming the same opinion is by presenting both sides, presenting, if there are even more than that, uh, presenting all different perspectives on it, and then letting people discuss, letting people think for themselves, and maybe guiding people um, to some extent, but not abusing your social influence, so to speak. Right, and, and I made that joke about um, uh, Sam Young's, but he is a professor is a really good example of someone that uh, by not saying exact, by fostering discussion and not saying explicit opinions, you can feel safer to kind of um, bring your own dialogue into it. Uh, and that goes into the second one that uh, Myers recommends, which is you can assign someone as a devil's advocate, for instance. You can, um, by doing that, you can stimulate better discussion and people can feel um, okay representing a different side, or even better, just having people be true to their actual beliefs and talk about them, even if they're different than perhaps the group as a whole. Exactly. If someone has a strongly held belief and they feel safe enough to share it, that's the best way to test that belief. So if only one side of a topic is presented, if only uh, one political opinion is shared, then no one's going to be very keen about tearing into the weaknesses of that opinion. No one's going to be looking for the flaws in that opinion. But if there's a devil's advocate, if there's someone who feels comfortable expressing a dissenting belief, then they can find, they can find and point out whatever the weaknesses are in that particular 
from that particular opinion, that particular issue. Another one they say is even subdividing the group, then reuniting to air differences that people have. So one thing with this too is that groupthink in itself, there's a lot of mind guarding sometimes. People try to, um, to kind of stick with the group reality and sometimes feel like they can't express any concerns or um, things that they're worried about regarding the group's kind of overall consensus. But if you separate and then come back to air differences, hopefully people will bring a more full perspective on the issue. Exactly. Uh, it opens it up for more people to be able to express themselves. So if you're in a class that's discussing an issue in psychology, let's say, and people have different perspectives on it, the best way to hear those different perspectives is to give individuals time to discuss it with each other and then talk about it with the group. That way they can flesh out their belief more. They can see, oh, I'm not the only one who thinks this, though they, they thought maybe before in the larger group they don't want to test the waters. They don't want to accidentally say something that most people won't agree with because you get that group censor, you get the group um, saying, no, you can't have that kind of belief. Yeah, and going back to what uh, you said earlier, Spencer, actually, of the importance of experts, uh, taking outside experts and associates to weigh in on a class or whatever it is that you're doing, maybe that's a business meeting or something else or even um, regarding an issue in sports, taking someone that has a different opinion from outside who is respected is a good way of seeing, oh, wow, there actually is a, a bigger world out there with people that have very intelligent people that have different you know, opinions on this. And I think it, the last one is it says before implementing whatever the, whatever the idea is, before you take action steps on it, give it some time. So you could have two meetings if it's a particularly important decision. You could have uh, talking outside of the group. Decisions made in haste by a group are usually not the best decisions, or they don't really reflect what the group actually wants to do. Decisions made over a period of time, decisions made with a couple of different discussions, tend to be more balanced, tend to be more um, holistic, tend to reflect what people actually want, and tend to reflect better ideas than decisions that are made like that. So another thing is, what do you think this looks like, not just with classes, but also in peer groups or in the cafeteria or wherever you are having dinner with friends? I don't know, how, what, are, what do you think some ways we could apply this in those areas? I think part of it is being aware of what your personality is. Some people score very highly in social dominance. Some people don't. So if you do, if you are very, maybe you're very extroverted, maybe you're very loud, maybe you are very opinionated, um, be aware of that. Be aware that that can influence what other people think or it can influence what other people feel comfortable sharing. So make sure you leave space for other people to speak, for other people to air their opinions. On the other side of it, if you are very low in social dominance, if you are more introverted, maybe you're quiet, maybe you're shy, maybe you're not very like confident, um, step up. Um, people want to hear what you have to say, and you, you can contribute something good to any conversation. And that can be one of the best ways for you to learn is not just standing outside of it and thinking, oh, I don't know if I have anything to contribute, or I already agree with what this group thinks. And then uh, share. Uh, express your opinions, and the group itself will end up with a more well-rounded understanding of whatever the topic is. And I think ultimately this kind of leads us to a final question. Are groups bad for us? Are they, are they good for us? Groups can sometimes lead people to have a lot of anxiety, make risky decisions, um, sometimes even do crazy things like de-individuation, which lead to some riots and crazy things like that. But 
What about the positive things we've looked at? What about, like Spencer was saying, about how we come together through relationships and our brains are wired for connection? The reason why we want belonging so much is because we're made for it. Either we're made for it from the evolutionary psychology says we're made as social beings because it's good for us. As a Christian, I believe we're made to be with each other, that God designed us to be in relationship with each other. That is the fundamental to our design is that we're not meant to be alone. And the reason why these group biases exist, the reason why groupthink exists, why group polarization, why groups have such a strong influence on us is because we crave belonging. We crave togetherness. We crave to be known more than really just about anything else. So yeah, I say go out there and form some new groups. Whether it's someone that completely disagrees with you or not, they want to belong just as much as you. Exactly. Go out there and change the world. Share your beliefs. Listen to other people's beliefs. Always be open. And uh, keep in mind the things you've learned on the podcast today. Thanks so much to Ben Reagan for being on the show. I'm Spencer Baker, and you've been listening to the Sightcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear future episodes, make sure you can find us on Facebook slash WJBC The Roar. We're on Spotify, WJBC The Roar. Podbean, WJBC The Roar, or WJBCTheRoar.podbean.com. You can find uh, our whole stream. We have the Sightcast. We have a couple of other shows that we produce as a club, and we want to produce quality content for you so you can keep learning and you can still be entertained. Once again, thank you for listening.